This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Lisa Yoshikawa, Associate Professor of History in the Department of History at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Dr. Yoshikawa is the author of Making History Matter, Kuroi Takatsumi and the Construction of Imperial Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2017. Dr. Yoshikawa, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. In your book, Making History Matter, you take historians during the Meiji period to task a little bit in how they justify Japanese imperialism. So can you explain how is it that the professional historians during that time are contributing to Japanese imperialism? Well, first of all, it's 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 a process in which the historians are justifying Japanese imperialism most likely because they uh, support Japanese imperialism, but also with another motivation, which is to get the field going. And in order to do that, so this is at, we're talking about the the academic history. Uh, the importance of academic history is introduced very early after Meiji Restoration, but actually establishing the field, that, that doesn't get going until probably mid-Meiji into 18. 90s and turn of the century. So they're trying to establish their own field based on the German model. And for that, what they need, of course, the university system is already being started to be established. But they, in order to establish the German sort of Rankian influenced historical field, they need to establish archives and there's all, all these practical matters, train students. And in order to get support for that, that's one of the reasons why I argue that the uh, historians try to get support from the state uh, sponsors to try to establish their field. And one of the ways they're doing this is to legitimate Japanese imperialism. And, you know, they do it in various ways. Uh, one of the things that they are tasked to do is initially to write a history of Japan, essentially uh, a national history, what they uh, eventually end up calling kokushi, a national history of Japan, uh, because it's part of uh, to try to establish the state of Japan. So one way in which they do that, the initial effort really by the academic historians is uh, started by the first generation of historians, which are people like Shigeno Yasutsugu and uh, Kumekuni Take, and they attempt to uh, write uh, national history. So national history meaning, you know, starting from the beginning, a linear narrative, right, uh, from the beginning of Japanese history to back then it was to a major period. So trying to uh, write that history, but, you know, in the 1890s, this is the first Kokushigan that was published in 1890. This is before Japan gets its first colony, if we exclude what's today Okinawa and what's today Hokkaido. It's really the second generation of historians who are writing after Japan gets Taiwan and Japan starts going into Korea first as a protectorate that uh, they really start narrating the empire into Japanese history. And one of the ways that they do this is to write a malleable history in terms of, so they have to obviously 
deal with the chronology, a linear chronology of Japanese history, but they also have to deal with defining Japan geographically. And one way in which the Japanese historians, the academic historians, tried to uh, legitimize Japanese imperialism is to try to uh, keep this geographical border quite malleable so that, you know, as the new territories are being incorporated, that can in the future be written into the linear history of Japan. You mentioned historians such as Kume Kunitake. In the book, you also focus on Kuroita Katsumi. So who is Kuroita and how does he fit into this story? Right. So Kume and Shigeno and then Hoshino is the sort of the three early historians. Those are what I call the first generation of historians. So they're the ones that are better known. Japanese historians um, uh, in Japan have been writing about them. People like Okubo has been writing about them. Those were are uh, usually known as sort of the founders of Japanese academic history. And uh, those were the people who initially attempted to write this history of Japan as a scholarship. But all three of them pretty much get fired because they go overboard is uh, the dominant narrative that's been around for a while in that uh, they they take the evidentiary history too far and start questioning some of the imperial myths that have been endorsed uh, by uh, the supporters of uh, this new uh, nation building. So what my book focuses on is Kuroita Katsumi, uh, who's the second generation. So Kuroita and people like Tsujizen Nosuke and also uh, Mikami Sanji sort of one5 fifth generation. But those are the second generation of historians who are trained by the first generation of historians, but they come to age around the time the Japanese are acquiring these Taiwan uh, and then later Korea. Uh, So these are the historians who start writing Japanese history to incorporate those places into um, the narrative of Japanese history. So these second generation historians play a much more significant part in terms of legitimizing Japanese imperialism uh, in Meiji. Speaking of this historical legitimization, it's funny that you mentioned the the mythological narratives because I, I kept thinking about the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki as kind of a, a retrospective legitimization of the Yamato court. Right. Is there a kind of similar function going on here with the kind of writing in legitimacy over these newly acquired territories? Well, for example, you know, sort of the most well, one of the most well-known ways in which historians in general, or actually anybody using a historical narrative to justify Japanese imperialism was, for example, you know, colonizing of Korea and how they uh, refer to the myth of Jingu who was uh, one of the mythical uh, female emperors who uh, supposedly went and conquered Korea and established Japanese colony uh, in Korea. So, you know, trying to use uh, those older texts like uh, Nihon Shoki and Kojiki to set up a precedent for uh, colonization of Korea. The importance of academic historians is that they stress the fact most academic historians uh, trained at Tokyo University stress the fact that they are academic historians. They work with scholarship, right? So they try not to make that uh, simple connection of precedent, for example. Um, what they're trying to do is that this is scholarship that is backed up by evidence, by documents. And therefore, as this is a scholarship 
with a certain methodology conducted by people who are trained in a certain way. And a lot of this, again, uh, goes back to uh, uh, borrowing from the German uh, system. They use the fact that this is scholarship. So Wissenschaft is the term that they uh, were using back then. Um, Scholarship, therefore, this makes our story makes imperialism legitimate because this is scholarship and not just a popular piece of history. So in terms of uh, using uh, Jingu, for example, people like Kuroita talk about the uh, uh, invasion of Korea uh, by Jingu, but in a much more delicate, uh, balanced manner. You know, the point is that Kuroita tries to establish a early connection between Japan and Korea to justify uh, Japanese colonization of Korea. But at the same time, that uh, early contact can't be so early uh, so that it takes away from Japanese exceptionalism that allows Japan to colonize Korea. So those older texts are used in a much more delicate way to justify Japanese imperialism. Speaking of not going too far back, well, we don't want to talk about the the alliance between Pekche and Wa, for example. So that was the time period that Kuroita was referring to. Jingu was fourth century, if I recall. But, you know, it's a much more complicated argument than saying Japan was colonizing Korea and very early in the history. Therefore, uh, that legitimizes Japanese colonialism of Korea in the 1905-1910. I was reading the annual reports put out by the government general of Korea. They they talk about uh, the archaeological excavations that that they undertake. And... Mm -hmm. I've always considered, you know, is this a way to find that historical evidence? You know, maybe if we can actually find archaeological proof for Jingu. Right. Does this, you know, is this another way? Of <laughs> yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, that's the, that's the whole other area of this is that sort of to try to deal with what do we do with these myths? Because obviously there's no evidence to back up a lot of these myths. And the Japanese historians like Kuroita back then were were uh, aware of this. But so that's why scholars like him turned to archaeology. He is also one of the early people to try to introduce archaeology into Japan. Uh, and one of the reasons he pushes archaeology is because he feels that if uh, so this is coming from the fact that in 1908, from 1908 for about two years, so Kuroita travels around Europe, and one of the places, you know, he goes to many places, and one of the places he goes to is to uh, the digs that are happening around the Mediterranean. And he hears about the story, and he witnesses the excavation in Troy and how, uh, you know, until Troy was ex- – so his understanding is that un- until Troy was excavated, a lot of the Greek myths were just myths. But once the archaeology proved the existence of Troy, then those myths no longer were myths. They became history. So that is also going on. Kuroita is one of the earlier ones who go to the peninsula uh, with other scholars, of course, uh, to try to find evidence of early Japanese occupation of Korea, of course, which they don't find. Uh, also related to this, you know, the fact that it, not just in, in terms of Japanese imperialism, but also early Japanese history, too, that, you know, archaeology is is uh, going to help the scholars. You know, as long as there's no evidence to disprove 
the existence of the early emperors, for example, right? We have to keep on digging because maybe there might be evidence that we find to try to establish, you know, the uh, Japanese history further, further back into time. You mentioned that one of the reasons that these professional historians are so actively encouraging imperialism, perhaps, is as a way to solidify their own positions within a changing academia. So what is happening to the profession of history and the discipline of history during the Meiji period? So the initial attempts so in 1869, right after the Meiji Restoration, you know, the initial leaders put out a memo saying that it's, history is important and history is uh, fundamental to uh, establishing a new state. So they start working on trying to establish a history of Japan. And, you know, that leads to establishment of the history uh, department once the uh, Tokyo University is established, et cetera, et cetera. And the first generation of historians trying to narrate uh, Japan and try to legitimize Japan and later imperialism through history. But there's a lot of problems. Uh, Margaret Mayo was one of uh, the scholars who wrote in English about this. But there are a, a lot of problems as the historians try to do this from 1880s into 1890s. And what ends up happening is basically that those uh, first generation of historians uh, fail. And they, uh, you know, they, they set up a historiographical institute to try to uh, collect documents to write these uh, histories, but the historiographical institute gets closed in 1893, right? So in what do we do here? The history, profession of history is already in its decline. And, you know, there are other means rising in terms of uh, trying to legitimize the Japanese state and Japanese imperialism. And so what the second generation of Japanese historians have to do is try to resurrect or resuscitate the field of Japanese history. This is, again, in mid-1890s into the turn of the century in 1900s. Uh, so that's part of the story there is that, you know, the, the Japanese historians initially tried, but the government didn't approve. So what do we do now? One of the most important institutes for historical study is closed. Where do we go from here? And so uh, one idea is that let's support the Japanese state formation, Japanese imperialism through history so that the uh, discipline itself can get support, uh, both uh, in terms of, well, most importantly, monetarily, right, but in terms of political support. And in doing so, as you mentioned, they come to supporting status authoritarianism and aggressive expansionism, which is counter certainly to this interwar liberalism. So you get this kind of counterintuitive situation where the academics and intellectuals are somewhat actually supporting what we might think of as fascism. They are. Well, the, if you call that fascism, if you're talking about uh, sort of the interwar illiberalism, so these forces fighting against the liberalism, people like Kuroita are, are standing on the side of supporting illiberalism, right? So especially after, uh, with, uh, after World War One. With the rise of national self-determination and related to imperialism too, and within Japan, rise of sort of more movement towards relative democracy uh, that starts in Japan, uh, certainly is 
there are forces, authoritarian, anti-liberal, illiberal forces in important parts of the government among the philanthropists, for example. And what the Japanese historians like Kuroita uh, end up doing is to take that stance of illiberalism to fight against the rhetoric uh, and movement of interwar liberalism uh, and sort of internationalism in general. And they do that by, they change their rhetoric so that their rhetoric uh, might be in sync with the language of the liberals, for example. But in reality, what they are advocating is sort of this major authoritarianism. You know, this is going into Taisho, but advocating sort of major authoritarianism and, you know, holding on very uh, pretty strict, heavy-handed colonial policies. I noticed you're talking about military expansion abroad, political repression at home, but very carefully not using the word fascism. So I'm curious, you know, would you say that can we define the mid 20s and 30s as a time of fascism in Japan or or should we be more cautious in using that term you know i i i think once we well let's put it this way fascism as an idea i think was the idea a lot of the ideals of fascisms uh were not taken up by the uh, governmental authority in the 1930s sort of the philosophy behind fascism i miles fletcher was one of those people who wrote about uh how the ideas uh fascistic ideas were not really being accepted by the government but at the same time as i was looking into some of these commemorations that historians and others were orchestrating in the 1930s, you know, surrounding historic figures, or, you know, if we go up to 1940, that the 26th centennial of the empire, uh, with all this sort of popular um, support, right? There are fascistic elements that I see, especially once we get into the 1930s, uh, of these populist support of these totalitarian state. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still going towards being convinced that this period can be defined as fascistic. Although I think uh, uh, some ideas had actually, the fascist uh, ideologies have been rejected by the government. And since you mentioned commemorations and certainly the, the kind of politicization of history and professional historians, can I ask you to talk about perhaps you know not only the commemoration of the 2600th founding of the of the empire in, in 1940, and then of course there's the the centennial of the Meiji Restoration in 1968, which is another kind of movement, uh, and now this being the sesquicentennial right. of the Meiji Restoration. So, what is the the kind of politics of historical commemoration? Well, it goes back, right? You know, politicization of sort of commemoration of historical events, we can trace back, you know, in Tokugawa period. Uh, but really sort of the modern politicization of these historical events, historical people. You know, we, we have, uh, for example, you know, the celebration of uh, Ninomiya Sontok, for example, something like that sort of celebration of historic figures really go back into Meiji. Uh, but I think things change in the 1930s. The scale becomes much larger. And, you know, in the 1930s, a lot of these are spearheaded by academic historians, again, to give uh, political, uh, to give uh historical legitimacy, because these are being uh, headed by academic historians who are trained uh, to do this. So that 
a celebration of historical uh, figures and events. You know, there's also the celebration of the Khmer Restoration, for example, that's happening in the 1930s and a bunch of celebrations surrounding Khmer Restoration. But in, in the 1930s and 40s, we see academic historians really taking part in these movements. And the 1940 uh, uh, celebration, the 26th centennial of uh, the Japanese Empire. Too by that time, Kuroita is gone. He's still alive, but he's sick, so he's not really part of it. By but um, some of his students are participating in such an event. The uh, most well-known name is uh, Hiraizumi Kiyoshi, who's oftentimes pinpointed as the historian that collaborated with uh, the authoritarian government and the wartime government. But certainly the role of historians in these celebrations go quite far back. Uh, but the nature of it, I think, changes in the 1920s and 30s and definitely by the 40s. What's interesting in the 1968 centennial of the Meiji, uh, Meiji Restoration is that you know a lot of progressive historians were, of course, on the uh, opposing side of this commemoration that was being led more uh, to my understanding, by uh, some parts of the Liberal Democratic Party, of course, uh, and the Japanese uh, progressive historians are fighting this. But at the same time, what's interesting is, you know, uh, historians also learn that, you know, these are moments in which, his, because these are historical celebration, uh, the field of history can gain, right, from these celebrations. So for the 1968 celebration, it's one of the things that happened is there's a push to establish the Dadeki um, Haku, uh, which is the uh, history museum that's in Chiba. Uh, this was a project that was started uh, by Kuroita uh, much earlier, but was never finished. So you know these these moments are also being used. So same way in, in, same way in, in which the historians were trying to establish their field, right? They politicize, they support certain political events, political uh, leaning uh, using, using uh, historical arguments. By participating in this commemoration, the historians are also trying to add something to their field, trying to make their uh, field, keep their field or make their field important and uh, significant. So 1968 was the progressives seemed to have lost that battle and and uh, the celebration for the centennial seemed to have gone on to a certain degree. But that commemoration, for example, uh, the uh, some of the historians from Todai are trying to have a history museum established. So again, I think these commemorations are being used for academics for the purpose of enhancing the discipline of history too. As you mentioned with the in 1968 you have all these very prominent progressive historians and it kind of reminds me of you know you always hear about in the post-war period a lot of the historians are, or the most prominent ones, you know, are, are are kind of Marxist in their interpretations, right? So Tanaka Akira or Inoue Kiyoshi, these these historians that are very critical of the Japanese wartime regime. Uh, Maruyama Masao, of course, right. another would be another example. Right. I mean, with that in mind, are these historians uh, do they feel culpable for some of what happens in the wartime or? Are they self-reflective about the role of professional history in legitimating imperialism? 
You mean the historians of 1950s, 60s? Right, the historians who survived the war. Well, the problem there is that, you know, these are students, especially in the 50s, these are still direct students of these historians like Kuroita and others who are supporting the war effort, right? Or, you know, interwar liberalism um, uh, that led to uh, the war. So for the most part, they have a scapegoat, uh, which tends to be people like Kiraizumi Kiyoshi that I mentioned before, or uh, Itazawa Takeo is another one. Okubo Toshiaki is the one who becomes sort of this father of Japanese historiography. Uh, he also was a student of Kuroita's uh, at a certain point. Uh, and what happens is that uh, they try to downplay the amount of uh, politicization of history that was going on, uh, especially by the main uh, founders of the field. And by doing that, they themselves also are not implicated in, you know, what's also happening here is that, you know, by the 19, by the time uh, uh, 1930s, when the second generation historians are established, uh, these students are also helping, right, these uh, people like Kuroita to write general uh, histories of Japan or in, in whatever projects that these interwar and wartime historians were working on. So as students, they're helping them. So they are also, you know, to a degree linked to this illiberalism as a project and support of this illiberal government, authoritarian government and Japanese colonial efforts. And in a way, they try to write that out of their recollection of Japanese history. I teach a Pacific War film class. And so one of the, <laughs> one of the early post-war films that I show is Kurosawa Akira's film, Waga Seishin ni Kui Nashi, uh, No Regrets for Our Youth, okay. which yeah. is kind of a dramatization of the Takigawa affair, where this professor <laughs> gets kicked out of Kyodai in 1933, I think it was. And, and so you have this whole kind of narrative of the red professors in the 1930s, ones who are speaking out against militarism. Right. But notably, they aren't historians. They're not historians, right? Because most of the historians in, especially in Tokyo University, were not speaking out against the war. They were supporting the war effort. So uh, Takigawa was, was in economics, was it? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I just remember he was teaching about Tolstoy, mm-hmm. maybe a law professor or something. And oh, Mino, maybe, yeah. And, maybe, well, yeah. Minobe Tatsukichi, of course, was a law professor, another one of these right. so-called red professors. But it, it's it's interesting that the historians are the ones who are openly supporting the war. And then you know, maybe this is why in the post-war period, there is such a reaction or almost rejection of this pre-war history. Right. So when, when you know, initially when, when the post-war historians started writing about how they or their predecessors were doing history, right, one of the narratives, uh, historiographies about their predecessors is that the entire enterprise up to, a historical enterprise up to 1945, academic history, uh, was uh, a failure, 
that the first three historians uh, were back to Shigeno and uh, Kume and Hoshino uh, tried but did not succeed. Uh, they got banished uh, from the uh, uh, their positions uh, because they were too overzealous uh, in trying to write history using evidentiary history uh, and questioning the myths. Uh, so the authorities shut them down. And since then, uh, historians have just been collecting documents and And it was going to be the post-war historians who were going to use those documents uh, to try to pick up where they left off pretty much in the 1890s. And then along the way, you know, there's uh, martyrs like uh, Tsuda Soukichi, whose uh, work gets censored by the late interwar and wartime government, for example. Uh, So that tended to be uh, the narrative of these scholars. And that came out, you know, when the uh, Marxist history was at, at its heyday. So what is the legacy of all of this for the history profession today in Japan? Um. Really, the issue of historiography is just getting to be revisited by historians today. Of course, um, those Marxist historians of the 50s and 60s and then going a little bit into the 70s uh, wrote their own history using, a lot of times using those primary sources, but also uh, in a very theoretical uh, manner. And then those histories that came out of those decades, uh, a lot of them are quite useful, but because of the nature of the studies, they focus on uh, you know certain economic factors, for example, and overly focus on economic factors, for example, um, and because they're such so theoretical, um, and of course also uh, supportive of, again, politicized support uh, of what's today uh, regimes that that are today uh, considered to be uh, problematic. Uh, You know, there's Stalinism, PRC, North Korea, et cetera, that uh, historians tend not to want to look back at the scholarship that came out of 1950s and 60s to although their um, uh, contribution in terms of revitalizing the historical field, sort of the general contribution might be commended today. But it seems like today what what's happening is the attitude is going back to primary sources, right? You know, what's often said today is, for example, rather than publish elaborately theoretical analytical monograph on a certain topic, which goes out of fashion within a decade, to really leave a mark as a historian, it's most important to publish a collection of documents, for example. Uh, So that, I think, is one of the legacies that remain because of the history of historiography. And so maybe a, a turn to a less partisan or, or maybe even turn to a more empirical research, perhaps. Right. Turn to more empirical research in a way, but we also have to remember that that's what earlier historians of uh, pre-war Japan were also claiming to do was empirical research. Not to say that, I mean, I, I, I don't really see a particularly partisan agenda coming out of uh, Japanese historians uh, today, but in, the rhetoric is, seems similar in terms of uh, focusing on primary documents. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. 
This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.